All right. Let's remain standing and recite our verse for the month. This is the first uh, week of the month, so if you don't know it, that is okay. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. John 8, 32. All right, you may be seated. Um, so, uh, I know that some of us have been talking about it already today, but I just wanted to say it for the benefit of those watching, um, that it is a near certainty that at some point in the very near future, we will be moving from this location into um, a building. Um, and so we are very much looking forward to that. I had another meeting, um, brief uh, conversation, I really should say, um, with the pastor of that church. Um, and they are not only open to, but encouraging uh, sooner rather than later um, that we move in there. So. Um, as details arise, I will keep you guys aware of that, um, but we are very much hoping and praying and believing in faith that at some point here in the very near future, um, we will have um, a new space that will give us the opportunity to serve our families um, in a much better way um, and be a good home for us. So be on the lookout for that. Um, so here we are tonight at the end of our series, Worthful. Um, have you guys enjoyed this series? Great. Awesome. Great to hear that. Uh, I'm glad that I'm not the only one. <laughs> uh, let me tell you, I'm happy to hear that. Um, but personally, I will say that this series is something that I myself have needed very much, um, that Allison has needed very much, and I'm really glad that the Lord led us um, to go through this series. Um, and I'm also really excited about the series that we'll be starting next week. Um, and I won't give you any spoilers, uh, but it is, it is also something that I very much need to hear for myself. And I'm sure I'm not the only one. So before we get there, we have to finish Ephesians. Um, how many of you have ever watched fail videos? Anybody? Yeah, some of those are hilarious, right? Um, you see somebody try to do something awesome, and then they fail spectacularly and we all laugh and we giggle and it's, it's great. Someone does something stupid and someone is there to capture it for the whole world to see. But sometimes there are fails that involve entire countries. And sometimes those fails are not so funny, um, especially when it costs hundreds of people their actual lives. Uh, one such example from sort of recent history comes from World War II. This fail took place in August of 1943 on the Alaskan island of Kiska. In June of the previous year, a Japanese regiment of about 500 soldiers had taken over the island. And by takeover, that's kind of a, a misnomer because there wasn't a huge allied presence there, a weather station um, with a, a small number of soldiers. Those soldiers, of those, two of them were killed in this Japanese invasion, and another eight were taken captive um, and sent to POW camps. So it wasn't that hard of a takeover, but 500 Japanese soldiers take over Kiska in 1942, and then about 2,000 of their men set up on the island to use it as a base. And so, in 1943, a joint Allied effort of Canadian and American troops planned an invasion to recapture Kiska, just over a year um, from when the Japanese took it over. 
phase one of the mission, which was dubbed Operation Cottage. I don't know where these names come from. Uh, Operation Cottage involved dropping bombs on the island. And so in all, about 424 tons of bombs were dropped in July 1943 on the island of Kiska. In addition, from battleships, United States and Canadian battleships lobbed over 300 tons of shells onto the island in the same month. I mean, they were lighting it up. They absolutely peppered Kiska with ammunition. And so then, once they felt they'd gained enough traction through these bombings, they sent over 34,000 troops onto the island. There was about 30,000 um, American troops and about uh, 5,000 Canadian troops. And they storm the beaches of Kiska together. The U.S. 7th Infantry Division, the 87th Mountain Infantry Regiment, and the 13th Canadian Infantry Brigade invaded. Though as I'm reading this, I think personally that the Canadians should have been the Mountain Infantry, but who knows? Um, so they land on opposite shores of the island in a coordinated effort to catch the Japanese from both sides. And for two days, the Allied forces pushed their way inland, battling through thick fog and constant artillery fire. And both sides took heavy fire. Now, are you ready for the plot twist? Here it is. Both sides took heavy fire from each other. The Canadian and American allied forces um, and a mixture of the two, all intermingled, took fire from each other. Unbeknownst to this coalition, the Japanese had abandoned the island three weeks prior to this invasion. They deemed it not worthy of their efforts to continue to occupy it. So they left. And so they left some mines and some timed bombs and set some booby traps and they hopped on their ships and they sailed away. Only then did it make sense to the Americans and Canadians why the bombers never got any anti-aircraft fire as they were flying over and dropping bombs on the island. It, it didn't occur to anyone that it was so weird that no one was firing back at them for the month of July as they were attacking this empty island. And so, after they realize that they've been attacking each other and just a bunch of empty booby-trapped buildings, over 300 men had died in this invasion. And I imagine that somewhere not too far away in the, into the Pacific Ocean, there were a lot of Japanese soldiers giggling into their sake. They had literally gotten allied forces to attack the wrong enemy in the fog, and they sail away laughing. It was a super-duper fail. Now here's what I want to present to you this evening as we are finishing the book of Ephesians. This is not unlike what Satan does in the spiritual war that is waging all around us. You see, you and I are under attack. Satan and his minions, no, not those minions, are hard at work assaulting your identity in Christ, seeking to destroy you from the inside out. 
And one of the greatest weapons in his arsenal is the old Kiska trick. To whip up some fog, then retreat into the shadows and watch as you fight your hardest against the wrong enemies. As you destroy yourself and as you destroy the people around you, he is just giggling into his sake. You see, Satan doesn't want you to understand who you are in Jesus. He doesn't want you to live in the truth of the Gospel and in the promises of God. He doesn't want you to stand firm on Scripture and see yourself through the lens of how the Father loves you. No, He wants you to hate yourself. He wants you to self-destruct. He wants to whisper lies into your mind that sound a whole lot like your own voice convincing you that you are worthless, so you might as well just give up. And He wants you to get mad about it and lash out in anger against the people who have made you feel this way. Because they, after all, are the real enemies here. The last thing that He wants is for you to realize that you're just inflicting friendly fire. The last thing He wants is for you to turn the sword on Him. But that is exactly what we, what we must do as we stand strong with clear vision that is given to us by the Gospel of Jesus. If you are going to win the war for worthfulness, you're going to have to make sure you're fighting against the correct enemy. So, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, and we'll be looking at verses 10 through 24. The words will be behind me on the screen. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love uncorruptible. So, tonight's message is going to be pretty simple. I want to show you that there are two enemies that Satan convinces you to attack instead of him, and that God has given us all we need in order to win the war against the real enemy. 
That simple. So, here we go. Here's point number one. The real enemy is often the darkness while you are fighting yourself and other people. The real enemy is often the darkness while you are fighting yourself and other people. The sad yet hilarious tragedy of Operation Cottage was that Kiska was an island that could have just been reoccupied by Allied forces without any battle whatsoever. No battle required. The truth was that there was this tremendous asset, this, this tremendous resource that was theirs for the taking, but the Japanese were smart enough to convince them to destroy themselves for something that already belonged to them. They didn't have to take it. It already belonged to them. It was already theirs. This asset that they needed, already theirs. The Japanese convinced them to destroy themselves over something that already belonged to them. Boy, is that not true of our worth in Christ. Right? We learned early on in this series that God gave us incomprehensible worth long before any of us were ever created. Before the beginning of time itself, God saw all the infinite possibilities, all the ways that human history could transpire. He saw the hearts of every person and how every person would exercise their free will in an infinite number of futures. And he looked down the barrel of time and he saw each individual and he knew and he loved each individual. And he loved them enough to create them. And if you missed any of the previous messages, I encourage you to go back and listen to those because this information has been life-changing for me. God spent 10,000 years making me. God spent 10,000 years making you. Do you understand how perfectly things have to go over the course of human history for you to even be about today? God did not just create us out of nothing however many years ago you were born, right? You are the result of a process of human history that has been happening for thousands and thousands of years in a process so detailed that my brain would explode if I even saw the math involved. I did not earn my worth. I didn't have to in the past, nor is there anything in the future that I could do that would earn God's love for me by way of merit. I am today already completely and fully worthful. And so are you. In Jesus, I have more worth than I could ever comprehend. Remember how we described it in an earlier message? It's like McDuck money. McDuck money, a, a number that we can't put uh, our minds around. Swimming in gold in a large vat of gold coins. More than we could ever understand. That worth is already completely and fully ours. It is not occupied by some forces that we have to push out. It does not require that we defeat any foe by way of accomplishment or achievement in order to possess it. It is already ours. But what does Satan try to convince me? What does he try to convince you? You want worth? You need to fight for it. Here's how. Accomplish this. Possess that. Experience these things. 
discover these hidden truths within your heart. Have this. Do that. Destroy them. Buy those. Conquer these obstacles. And so we gather all the intel and we start firing away, giving our full effort, shooting off the fullness of artillery and running like Rambo into the fog for something that already belongs to us today. And do you know who are the only people that we are hurting? Allied forces, ourselves and the people around us. We're not even shooting at the right enemy. Do you see how Paul started this section on spiritual warfare? He tells us to suit up and be strong in the Lord and put on the full armor. Why? So that, he says, you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. He says that we have to suit up and we have to stand strong in order to stand against the schemes of the devil. The schemes. You don't think the Japanese felt great about their scheme to abandon the island without the allied forces knowing about it? I bet they felt great about that scheme. It's the same with the devil. He doesn't just attack us in clear and obvious ways, though sometimes he does do that. But most of the time, he attacks us through schemes, tricks, deception. Jesus, after all, referred to Satan as the father of lies. And I want us to uncover one of his greatest lies. And that is, ladies and gentlemen, very simply, that he is the real enemy, but he's gotten us to be convinced that the real enemy is other people. Or that the real enemy is you. I'm sure you've heard the saying, or somebody say, I am my own worst enemy. Anybody ever said that yourself? I am my own worst enemy. But that's some Kiska stuff right there, folks. You are not your own worst enemy. Satan is. You have a far, far worse enemy than yourself. The devil and he is coming after you. So interestingly, in this passage, before Paul gets to what any of the armor is, or what any of the pieces represent, Paul says that first, we have to turn our eyes toward the correct enemy. So, look at verse 12. He says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In case we missed it, here it is again. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood but we wrestle against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers, and the spiritual forces of evil. Don't you find it interesting that he specifically points out that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood? It's because he knows that that's exactly where we're going to first fix blame. For all of our problems, for all of our issues. We're going to fix that blame 
on other people. Or we're going to fix the blame on ourselves. Them or us. Flesh and blood. We're not paying attention to the fact that the real enemy has already abandoned the island. We're not paying attention to the scheme. And so Paul gives us this freebie. He clues us in. He says, hold on, hold on, don't shoot yet. Don't, don't fire. How about point your ammo over at the battleship that is slinking away off into the shadows. That's the real enemy. Because he knows that if he didn't do that, if he didn't point us toward the correct enemy, he knows where we're going to attack. Other people. Or ourselves. He says that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. He, he specifically says to his audience, hey, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Why does he do that? Because they are, right? When you're, when you're telling somebody, hey, we don't do that. Why do you tell them? Because they're in the middle of doing that. Hey, this is not something we do, okay? We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. What is the point of wrestling? I myself never wrestled, but I understand that the point of wrestling is to subdue an opponent, to get the better of them. And so he's addressing an audience of people there and now that is currently trying to subdue an opponent. But they're subduing the wrong opponent, that being flesh and blood. So let's break this down a little bit simpler for us. In this series, we have been talking about how to find our worthfulness in our identity in Jesus. And what is the conventional way that we have learned in this society of finding our worthfulness? Well, it's by measuring our worth against other people. It's almost as if we're viewing worth as a thing and someone else is holding it and I have to wrestle it away from them so that I can have it. I need to make sure that once I'm holding it, nobody else gets it. I want the thing. I want the worthfulness for myself. Practically, what might that look like? Well, that depends on where you personally believe your worthfulness comes from, depending on whatever insecurities you have. If you believe that worthfulness comes from a job, that means you're chasing the corner office, even if you have to take down the guy or girl who is currently occupying it. You'll do whatever it takes to get ahead. If it comes from beauty, you'll do whatever you can to wrestle the Instagram likes away so that you can have a piece of the pie, so that you can look like them, so that you can feel what they feel. If it's from being a good parent, you'll be constantly wrestling your kids to fit into a particular mold so that they achieve what you think they need to achieve in order to make your efforts worth it. If it's in ministry success, you'll see successful pastors as enemies who are taking sheep away from you instead of seeing them as allies who are increasing the number of sheep in the kingdom. I have no idea what that is like. I am not speaking to anyone personally when I say that. However it plays out practically, Wrestling against flesh and blood for our worthfulness always means trying to bring someone else down in order to bring yourself up. So, 
let's talk for a moment about toxic comparison. We are wired in our society to constantly compare ourselves to others. Social media is the leading cause in the world for body dysmorphia and low self-esteem. We are constantly scrolling and perusing through perfectly curated and filtered images of other people's highlight reels and mentally placing our own lives or our own body perceptions in a side-by-side. And we're always coming out worse in our own minds. And so what does that leave us to do? One of two things. A, we chase the carrot. Or B, we just give up in despair. Chase the carrot or give up in despair. Either we give all of our effort toward achieving whatever it is that we're comparing ourselves to, or we just give up hope. And we shrug and we're like, you know what, there's no, there's no way I could ever be that. There's no way I could ever have that. So, so I'm just going to hate myself and I'm going to distract myself however I can so that I just don't think about it. You know, one of the weird things to me about the aftermath of Operation Cottage was, though I couldn't find an exact number anywhere in my research, most sources indicate that a large number of soldiers that were lost in that battle were listed as MIA, missing in action. Now, maybe this is just the ramblings of an uneducated idiot, but how do you lose that many guys on an island that's 22 by 1 miles? Like, this is a small little island, okay? This, this is not like the size of the United States, okay? This is a tiny little island. How do you lose hundreds of people in that amount of space? That is how bad of a failure this operation was. But in the spiritual war that we are waging, it, it's no different. We are either charging forward with all of our efforts, trying to win an island and only hurting other people, or we just get lost. Lost in despair. And sometimes it's a combination of both. Americans weren't just shooting Canadians. Americans were shooting Americans. Canadians were shooting Canadians. These are t attacks against oneself. And Satan gets us to do the same thing. It happens in our internal dialogue. And we talked earlier in the series about all of us have an internal dialogue, right? All of us have this constant conversation going on in our mind. And it's a combination of a lot of different things. But what does your internal dialogue sound like? More specifically, whose voice does your internal dialogue sound like? Yours, right? Your internal dialogue is almost always spoken in your voice. So your inner thoughts sure do seem like you're speaking to yourself, do they not? So when the thought comes across your mind, I'm worthless, whose voice is that spoken in? Is it a sinister, obviously evil, gravelly voice? You're worthless. No. It, it sounds like you. 
It sounds like your own voice saying to yourself, I'm worthless. I'm still worthless. Even after all my efforts, still worthless. And do you know who is actually behind that? Satan is. Satan turns you against yourself. And this passage gives us some specific ways in which Satan attacks. So, Paul lists a number of pieces of armor that are important. But before we can get to why those pieces of armor are important, we have to examine the things that Satan does which necessitate those pieces of armor. So it's looking at the flip side. The first place is through lies. Lies. Remember, Satan is the father of lies. He's an expert in deception. And ever since he did so with Adam and Eve in the garden, he subtly slides in and gets you to question everything that God has said. He gets you to question your identity. He gets you to question your worth, your value to God, your self-esteem. He straight up lies to you and he uses your internal dialogue to do it. The second way that he attacks is by manipulating your emotions. I think all of us probably can attest to the fact that it's much harder, it's much more difficult to operate at full capacity when you are hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. Right? It's much harder to think clearly when you are feeling very strong feelings. So if you don't think that Satan is going to do whatever he can possibly do to stoke those feelings, you are going to spend a lot of time shooting into the fog on Kiska Island. Similarly to the first form of attack, he attacks us by way of intrusive thoughts. Sometimes those thoughts are lies. But intrusive thoughts aren't limited to just lies. Intrusive thoughts can be temptations. They can be damaging opinions, sinister urges, sensations of confusion, flashbacks to painful events in the past, twisted moments of imagination, disconnected thoughts that really don't lead to anywhere. And the list goes on and on. And in those times, we are jarred and we think, how could something like that even come into my mind? And where do we turn the gun on ourselves? Oh my God, I'm so awful for having that thought. Where do you think that thought came from? It is a hijacking of our mental state. One of the most subtle and easy weapons that the enemy uses by filling our minds with intrusive thoughts. Planting a seed, planting another one, planting another one. And then he runs off into the shadows and watches as we self-destruct and attack ourselves. Fourth, he plants seeds of doubt in the promises of God. Remember his voice in Eden speaking to Adam and Eve saying, Did God really say that? 
Did God really mean that? Did, did God actually say this? You see, there, there are things that God has very clearly spoken. And oddly enough, <laughs> strangely enough, we can easily find those things at a moment's notice. You see, it's not like there's some tremendous mystery surrounding the will of God or God's commands, or how He feels about things, or what He has promised to us. At any moment, we can reach into our pocket, open the Bible app, and read in very clear language, unmistakable terms, what the voice of God has said. But man, it is so easy. It's crazy how easy it is for us to question what God has said. It's so easy for us to battle a thought like, does God really love me? Yes! <laughs> yes, He does! And it's written in very clear words a lot of times in a lot of ways in this book. It's not a mystery. And yet, we spend years spinning ourselves in circles, yearning and doing whatever we possibly can do in our own efforts to get something we already have that's explicitly laid out for us. Who do you think is behind that? The real enemy is. And that leads us to the final attack which is to flood us with hopelessness. We've tried as hard as we can, and we failed again. And we're comparing ourselves to other people that have what we want. And, and, and we're comparing our lives to what our dreams of our lives say that our lives are supposed to be. And we throw up our hands and we say, I give up, all right? There, there's no way I can do this. There's no way I can be that. There's no way that I can just have what I want. And we sink into hopelessness. And all of these attacks continue and continue. And we just keep firing our weapons. You know, we, we just keep firing away, firing away all the time, unaware that they're aimed straight at other people and at ourselves. And Satan is giggling on his battleship off in the Pacific Ocean. You are not your own worst enemy. And no other people are your worst enemy either. There is no flesh and blood that is your worst enemy. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't times that people are working against you. And that there aren't times that you're working against yourself. I'm not in any way saying, we're all good. Everyone is fine. There's no sinning against other people. There's no sin in us. I'm not saying that, okay? What I'm saying is, the worst enemy that you have ain't you. And it ain't them. The worst enemy we have is Satan. And we need to stop fighting against the wrong enemy. So, that begs the question, how then do we fight against the real enemy? 
That's where Paul takes us next. So here's point number two. We can be fully equipped to win the war against the real enemy. We can be fully equipped to win the war against the real enemy. In case it's not already been made clear, let's make it abundantly clear that the Allied forces had everything they needed in order to occupy Kiska. They had everything that they could possibly need to occupy Kiska. They did not need to lose 300 plus men. And I am sure that those 300 plus men would have much rather turned their forces toward the Japanese battleships that were slipping off into the night rather than each other. They lacked nothing. Except, obviously, sense. <laughs> they had everything they needed. Once we have our correct target, we also have everything we need. Take a look once more at verses 13 through 20. Paul says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So, we've already talked about the way that Satan attacks. Now Paul tells us, here's how we can be fully equipped against those attacks. So remember, the first way that he comes in is with lies. The father of lies deceives. He has tricks. He's got schemes. He tries to convince us of things that are not true. So, what does God give us? He gives us the belt of truth. Why is a belt so important? It's not just simply because a belt makes the outfit pop. Though it can. Paul speaks about belts in a warfare sense. Belts had a very important role for a Roman soldier. And that is that that belt held all the pieces together. That belt had protective armor that hung from it that protected the legs. That belt had sheaths for the different weapons. That belt was what held it all in a solid piece. The belt holds it all together. Well, think about it this way. One of my hobbies over the last couple of years is weightlifting. And as one of the tools that I sometimes use in the course of weightlifting is a belt, a weightlifting belt. So when I'm squatting, I am putting about 100 pounds more than my body weight on the bar. And that's a lot for my back to handle. So when I wear a weightlifting belt, 
And I just realized I'm doing the Aaron Rodgers celebration here every time I do that. <laughs> when I wear a weightlifting belt, what that does is it stabilizes my core. It keeps my back straight and supported. It gives me a structured frame to push out against. And so doing so helps me to safely move that weight up and down. That belt holds it all together. The same is true of truth. Satan tries to deceive us with lies, to derail us with deception. If you don't have the truth holding you together, you are left open to those attacks. When we've got all of that weight on our shoulders that we are trying to carry, we have to have the truth to stabilize us, to help us move that weight. We have to remind ourselves what the Word says. We have to remind ourselves of the promises of God. We have to hold tight to something that is ever stable and secure, something that is unmoving. You need to be armed with the truth. When you are in a swirl of lies, you've got to have something to hold on to. You've got to have something that's holding on to you. You've got to have something that's, that's holding you all together. That's the truth. Next, we're given the breastplate of righteousness. And what does a breastplate protect? Your trunk. A breastplate protects your trunk. Specifically, it's protecting what's underneath, right? The vital organs. More specifically, it's protecting your heart. We talked about how Satan will flood us with emotions, feelings, confusion, sadness, despair, anger, envy, jealousy, hatred. And it's really hard to think clearly when all of those emotions are flooding us. As I'm sure you know, just because truth is in your head, it doesn't always make it all the way down to your heart. Just because you know something is true doesn't always mean that you feel it to be true at the same time. The heart and the mind are sometimes at odds with each other. Even though you know something is true, if you don't feel it's true, a lot of times, far too often I'd say, we end up following what we feel instead of what we know. So Satan exploits that. He tries to get us to feel all sorts of things that are going to be detrimental to our victory. Now don't get me wrong, I, I'm not saying that our emotions are just tools of the devil. And that every time you feel something, it's from Him. No, God is the one who gave us our emotions. God designed our feelings. Our emotions are a beautiful gift. They're given to us by God in, that, in, in order that we might experience Him and experience His creation in a much more meaningful and, and, and enjoyable way. But our emotions can't be what controls us. You should have feelings. You just can't let your feelings have you. Let me say that again. You should have feelings. You just can't let your feelings have you. The goal of the enemy is that you would use your emotions as your driving force. His goal is for you to be guided by what you feel. Because what you feel is going to change all the time. 
Your emotions are going to go up and down and left and right and all over the place. And depending on what you're experiencing in life, that can be more intense in certain moments than in others, right? Your, your feelings are going all over the place based on a number of factors. So that's a great way to be inconsistent in your decisions if you're being guided by ever-changing emotions. And so what does God give us in order to protect us from that? He gives us His righteousness. Now you might ask, okay, well how does God's righteousness protect my heart? Well, because God's righteousness is unchanging. It is permanent. It is fixed. Unlike our feelings, the righteousness of Christ is steady. It is ever-present. And it provides us an anchor to hold on to when the seas of emotion are just raging. When we get disoriented... His righteousness provides something that we can always hold on to. And the psalmist tells us, you are a rock of refuge that I can run to. You hold me secure in the midst of the storm. Similarly, God gives us a helmet to protect our heads, to protect our minds. Satan's goal is to invade our minds with intrusive thoughts. And like I said earlier, those thoughts aren't just limited to temptations, though temptations are included. Thoughts can be all sorts of things. Damaging opinions, sinister urges, sensations of confusion, flashbacks to painful events in the past, twisted moments of emotion, disconnected pieces of thoughts that don't really connect anywhere, etc., etc. And if our minds are just swirling, swirling with all kinds of conflicting thoughts, and we can't think straight, what are we going to do? We're going to attack the first thing we see in the fog. And oftentimes that is allied forces instead of the real enemy. And so you end up thinking a lot of thoughts that end with, so then I must not be worth anything. I must be worthless. So what does God give us in order to protect us from that? He gives us the truth of salvation the helmet of salvation, so that we might fill our minds with thoughts like, yes, I am worthful. I am worth so much that Christ would die for me. My salvation is proof, proof of what God thinks of me. We're reminded over and over in Scripture to fill our minds with the truth of God's Word. One of my favorite examples is Lamentations chapter 3. The author is lamenting, of course, the painful experience that he is going through. He poetically and tragically lays out the excruciating reality of what he is in the middle of and how he feels that, that it's God who's putting him through it. But in one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible, he says this, But this I call to mind. This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Therefore, this I call to mind. I, I think about it. I bring it back up. As everything is swirling and I don't understand what's going on and I'm confused, this I call to mind. That's an action, right? That doesn't happen by accident. 
It's not just by osmosis. I purposely call to mind, I think about, I fill my brain with this, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies come, never come to an end. Great is your faithfulness. It is that very practice of calling to mind who God is and what He does and how He loves. That gives us hope. That protects our minds. When the storm comes, stop and think about the truth of salvation and let that calming power flood your imagination. You see, Satan doesn't, he doesn't want you to believe that. He wants you to question everything that God has ever said. He wants you to question God's promises. He wants you to question God's commands. Ultimately, what he wants you to do is question God's heart. Does God actually love me? Does he really want what is best for me? Is God holding out on me? If God loved me so much, then why did he let this or that happen? Is this how a loving God would act? Is what he asks of us just a bunch of arbitrary rules? Why does God demand my worship? Is he insecure? Why did God promise me this and it hasn't happened yet? These questions, these doubts swirl like crazy. And again, this is what Satan has been doing since the very beginning. Did God really say? But actually though, did, did he really say this? And as it pertains to our identity in Christ and the worthfulness that ought to come with it, Satan gets us to question who we are and who God is, how he has made us, why he made other people a certain way that he didn't make me, why my calling is not like their calling, why my skills are not like their skills, why they have this particular thing and I don't, why they're better at this than I am, why they have this or that, and we keep questioning and questioning and questioning, and our identity can be dealt a mortal wound. A mortal wound if we don't have something to protect us from those flaming darts, is what Paul calls them. These shots fired by allied forces in the fog. So, God gives us the shield of faith. Faith. Faith is being sure of what we hold for and certain of what we do not see. Faith is what we walk by instead of by sight. Faith is forward focused. Faith is trusting in God even when, especially when, it seems to make the least amount of sense. Faith remembers all of the ways that God has kept his promises before. Faith says, as we sang in that song earlier, you were faithful then, you'll be faithful now. Faith preaches the gospel to our doubts. The, the chorus of that song, I will speak to my fear, I will preach to my doubt. You were faithful then, you'll be faithful now. Faith preaches the gospel to doubt. You cannot put your hope 
in any earthly thing in order to extinguish the darts of the enemy. You can't. You cannot place your security on your own strength, on your own goodness, or on the goodness or strength of any other person, people, group, tribe, significant other, fill in the flesh and blood blank. None of those things can extinguish the flaming darts of the enemy. It is only faith in the promises of God. But what we do so often is what Disney has been telling us to do since childhood. Search your heart. Look within yourself. Find your inner truth. Believe the magic within you. Guys, those are lies. Lies. Straight out lies. Those are friendly fire bullets within the fog of Kiska. When you turn inward, instead of upward, your life goes downward. There's your tweetable for the day, okay? And I googled this earlier to make sure that I'm the first person who said it, and I am, all right? When you look inward, instead of upward, your life goes downward. Make sure if you tweet that, you quote me, all right? Don't... Don't take that for yourself, Daryl. <laughs> Seriously, though, if you turn inward for hope, if you look within yourself for truth, if you, if you search your heart to find what you need, all that you were doing is you were laying mines, booby traps within your own soul that are going to explode. And they will destroy you later and they will cast you even deeper into despair. You must turn upward. It is your faith in the promises of God that protects you from the enemy's schemes. Then we come to one of the parts of the armor that seems confusing. Shoes. Why is the gospel illustrated by shoes? Few reasons. Don't get me wrong, I love shoes, I'm a shoes guy, my, my closet is full of shoes, my wife makes fun of me for that, I have like 30 something pairs of shoes. Oftentimes, when I'm getting dressed in the morning, I start with, what shoes do I want to wear today? That's how I'm at. Why does the gospel get illustrated by shoes? Well, the shoes that Paul is talking about are sort of like cleats. Remember, he's got a Roman soldier in mind. These, these shoes have spikes on the bottom. And those spikes help a soldier to stand his ground, to hold firm against an enemy attack. It gives him traction to move forward. With his shield out in front of him, he can press forward with his feet firmly on the ground to bust through enemy lines. Also, though I know that this is not what Paul had in mind, but this is how my imagination works, I think when I'm reading this passage about one of my favorite movie scenes ever. In the movie 300, there's a part where King Leonidas is standing in front of a messenger from King Xerxes. And this messenger is arrogant. And he's speaking all of these blasphemies against King Leonidas and his queen. And so, at the end of his spiel... King Leonidas tells him what he thinks of what he's got to say. And as this messenger is like, 
This is madness. This is madness. Leonidas says what? This is Sparta. And he kicks that dude into a bottomless pit. Game over. And then you see throughout that movie in several of the fight scenes, these, these Spartan enemies, as one of the things they do is they're hacking them with swords and throwing spears and hitting them with their shields, they're also kicking them to the ground. Even shoes to the right warrior can be a weapon. The gospel is what grounds us firmly. It is what we press down into in order to stabilize us. When the enemy pushes, the gospel gives us traction. It gives us foundation. And it is also a weapon against Satan and his forces. Now let me be very clear in this reminder. It is a weapon against Satan and his forces, not other people. The gospel is not a weapon against other people. We do not kick people with the gospel. Are we clear? We don't kick people. That is friendly fire on Kiska. We kick Satan with the gospel. This is dogma! We advance the gospel behind enemy lines in order to rescue the lost. And when you are walking in the gospel, you are walking in worthfulness. When you're walking in the gospel, you're walking in worthfulness. Finally, there's the weapon, a straight-up weapon that we are given in order to face off against the enemy. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Swords are both offensive and defensive weapons. With a sword, a warrior blocks, and with a sword, a warrior strikes. Am I right, Reagan? World champion fencer here in the room. With a sword, you block and you strike. And the Word of God is what we rely on in order to block the attacks of the enemy And it's also what we use to strike back against him. You cannot beat the enemy with positive self-talk. You cannot beat him with affirmations. You cannot beat him with hashtag positivity. It's not going to happen. The only way to strike back against him is by quoting scripture to him. When Satan tempted Jesus... Jesus did not respond to those temptations with, Oh yeah? Well, I'm God, okay? So, back off. Jesus did not stand in front of his first century mirror every day and say to himself, You are enough. You are God in the flesh. You are perfect in every way. Didn't happen. No, what did Jesus do? Jesus said, It is written. Jesus said, it is written. He shoots back with Scripture. Even though, yes, He was enough, fully. He was God in the flesh. He was perfect in every way. But He entrusted Himself to the one who judges justly. Even for the God-man, His weapon was the Word 
all the more it must be for us. We fight the real enemy through prayer and scripture and worship and fellowship with the believers. That's how Paul ends the chapter, with prayer and with fellowship. Look at what he says. He says, Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Guys, pray. Pray for yourselves. Pray for the people in your church. Pray for your pastor. My God, please pray for your pastor. I desperately need it every day. Pray for each other. And then he ends this by saying, so that you may also know how I am and what I'm doing. Hold on. Isn't that weird? Right? Check the transition. Spiritual warfare. Intensity. Battles raging. Eternity at stake. And then he's like, and I also know that y'all are wondering how I'm, how I'm doing. You want to know how I'm doing? Well, I'm sending Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord. He'll tell you everything. Tychicus will give you the lowdown. Tell you what we've been up to, what we've been eating, how things are going out here. Because there's a relationship involved. There's closeness. There's fellowship. Paul knows that these people care about him. And vice versa. What's going on in your life? Here's what's going on in my life. Let's share together. We're not just talking about one thing over here. We're really sharing. How am I doing? How are you doing? What's, what's going on? I've sent him to you for this very purpose. That you may know how we are. And that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Scripture, prayer, and relationship with the body. That is what's going to keep us from attacking ourselves and attacking other allied forces. That's what... That's what's going to keep us focused on the correct enemy. You are in absolute war over your identity in Jesus. And the wounds of that war run deep. Satan has successfully landed a lot of blows, has he not? And those wounds are painful. But the war is not over. Victory is in our grasp. That's why we sang, I'm going to see a victory. For this battle belongs to the Lord. We will press on. We will keep fighting. We will know that Kiska is already ours. Our worthfulness is already complete and in our hands. And we will focus on fighting the right enemy. And we will win. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you have already won the battle. Though we are in the middle of painful circumstances, 
Though so often Satan lands a blow that is so painful and the wounds of that hurt. Though, yes, sometimes other people are the ones that Satan uses in order to inflict that pain on us. Help us to remember, Lord, that the real enemy is him. Help us to fight against the right enemy. Lord, I pray that you would help us to lay our wounds before the cross, trusting you with faith that you will heal all of them. That every tear we cry matters so deeply to you. That your word tells us that you know the number of the tears we have cried. Thank you for caring so deeply about everything that we're experiencing, everything that hurts us. God, I thank you for the series that we've just walked through, and I pray, Lord, that as a church, we as individuals in this church would be so firm, so firm in our identity in Jesus, so firm in the worthfulness that comes from it. God, I pray as we sing this closing song, Lord, that you would do whatever work in our hearts you need to do. God, if there's people watching or listening who have never trusted you to be their salvation, to be the Lord of their life, if there's people who are here or watching, Lord, who've never discovered just how worthful they are because of Jesus, Lord, I pray that you would bring them to a place of surrender and a joyful transformation of death to life. That they would seek out somebody from this church and say, help me to walk through this. Lord, thank you for your many blessings. Thank you for the way that you love us, that you lay down your life for us. And I pray that we would do the same for you. Let us offer a song of gratitude to you now, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand, we'll close in worship.